Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Spartan Spotlight. I'm Justin Thind. I'm here as always with my co-host Corey Robinson. And today we're joined by one of the most special guests we've had on the show. And that's local legend, sports writer, radio host, Jack Evling. Jack, how are you doing today? Hey, Justin, how are you doing, Corey? Uh, I'm good. Uh, this, this is a big one. Uh, because as you know, my wife works at the Oakmas Post Office. And yeah. So she, uh, it's funny because uh, everybody assumes that my wife is a big sports person, which she's like <laughs> the complete opposite of. And I would tell her stories and she doesn't listen to any of them. But she remembered uh, me talking to her about the first time I saw you uh, at a Michigan State game, that you were the only person I was ever awestruck with because with the players, you know, we... <laughs> we put our thing on and apparently she remembered that story and uh, connected it with you at the post office and said, uh, invited you on for us. <laughs> well, if you're awestruck, then you are very easily impressed. Uh, I, I have actually talked to your wife many times uh, with books, the perfect 10 that I have shipped over there. And so I feel like she's my private postal representative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I know I uh, I got a chance to sit with Jack at one of the recent uh, Michigan State uh, football games. I think it was against Penn State, and I was just picking his brain on where does he think Kenneth Walker ranks respective to other running backs and things like that. Because there's not really anyone else in in the space of Michigan State athletics that has the breadth of knowledge that Jack has, and I mean that in the in regards to historical context. So people like me that have only been doing this for like a couple of years it's easier for us to get caught in the moment and kind of lose context. And if you don't have an overarching um, context of where the program has come from, the good days, the bad days, the players that were good back in the day versus now, if you don't have all of that. You don't have a complete opinion of even the present tense. So because of that, we just wanted to get Jack on here. He'll have much better formulated opinions than we do on pretty much everything. <laughs> so just going to go through just a range of questions, but I guess first, Jack, for for the people that might not be like really, really familiar with your work or your background, how long have you been doing this? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I started in 1978 at the Lansing State Journal, and I spent 25 years there before I escaped. <laughs> and then I've been doing broadcasting since 2002, radio and the last eight plus years television and between then i've managed to write uh eight books and stay out of jail <laughs> uh good stuff so you've seen a lot you've done a lot um you said 78 so you were probably there when the magic johnson recruitment was going on as well right not the recruitment uh that was actually right. 76 77 but i was teaching and coaching in Lapeer at the time. Mm. And uh, we used to drive in from Davison, Michigan, to East Lansing for all the games. I saw Irvin play many times right. in high school. And so we followed that recruitment. And it was unlike any recruitment that Michigan State has ever had. You can imagine, the only thing I could compare to it would have been LeBron James. Right. And what that meant. And it was pretty well divided 50-50. Some people thought he was going to go to Michigan because uh, Wolverines had a better team and just mm -hmm. played in the national championship in 76 and were ranked number one in the country in 77. 
but his heart was with Michigan State. And he actually went to the Albert Schweitzer Games in Germany Mm -hmm. long after signing day. He still hadn't signed. Every day it was a story. What's he thinking? What do you have for lunch? (laughs) And so he goes to these games and comes back, and it's about midnight, 1230 in the morning, and uh, there's a crowd of several thousand people waiting to meet his plane at the airport. And he walked by, and I think he realized then what his dad had been telling him, that you really can't go to Ann Arbor. And even though his head told him that uh, he might have more success as a Wolverine, he realized that Michigan State had some players here too, and all they needed was the catalyst. And uh, three years later, they're national champions. Yeah, that's crazy. It kind of sounds a lot like what we have nowadays with just how – over the top, some of the recruiting coverage goes. But back he didn't have then, Justin and Corey following his every but, move. But but back then, uh, like that, that was kind of cool to see that you guys still did that for uh, the extreme guys like that. So you're having the airplane trackers like they, the they only did thing with they were the coaching missing, search. The only thing they were missing were the crystal ball predictions on 247.com. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And he was actually the number three prospect in the class behind a guy named Albert King, who went to Maryland, and Gene Banks, who went to Duke, a very good player. Both of them were good players, but they weren't urban. And in those days, there was no internet, obviously. Uh, Didn't have the same recruiting rankings, nothing like 24-7. Didn't have talk radio the same way. So, you know, it was kind of like an urban legend of who this guy was. Very few people had seen him. And uh, those that did will never forget it. Yeah. So I guess I'll uh, transition off of that since I can't ask you who the greatest athlete you've ever covered at Michigan State is. We'll go with because that's an obvious choice, but it would be Irvin. So who's the the greatest football player for you that, that you've ever covered in your time covering Michigan State? You know, that's an interesting question, guys. And, and uh, I think we talked about this a little bit at the game. Right. If you look at a career over four years, uh, that's a different question than who is the best if you wanted to win a game. Yeah. So, Corey, do we we want to ask Jack who the most dominant player was then? uh, He he can go with – he can answer however deep. Yeah, I I think in terms of having impact on a game, it's tough to top canine. Right. When you think that – not only uh, did he do what he did carrying the football, not only did he rush for five touchdowns and 197 right. yards against Michigan, first time any player in Wolverines history had done that, uh, he also made a lot of the passing game possible mm-hmm. as so much was built on play action. And that's what I'm wondering about the upcoming season. I think Peyton Thorne will be better. I think the receiving core will be very strong. You would hope the offensive line would be as good or better, at least in pass blocking, run blocking, still something to be desired. Right. But without that running threat, and no matter what Jalen Berger and Jarek Broussard and the three returning running backs are, they're not going to be Kenneth Walker. Right. So uh, how much tougher is that going to be for Michigan State to throw the ball? Right, right. But I'm really glad that was your answer because – I have felt, but I haven't vocalized it, that Kenneth Walker has to be one of the most dominating players in Michigan State history. But 
And the few times where I do bring it up, people say that's because I don't have an appreciation or understanding of history. And they, yeah. they, they name other running backs in the past. So really glad. Uh, I'm really glad that was your answer. Well, I think in terms of what did they actually do? Uh, you know, Lorenzo White uh, led them to a Rose Bowl and scored two touchdowns, set an NCAA record for sophomores, 2,066 yards, uh, did some amazing things. But he would carry the ball 40, 50 times a game. I saw him carry the ball 103 times in eight days. I saw him carry the ball 56 times in a de facto Big Ten championship game. So he was a different kind of back. He was a true workhorse back. But in terms of uh, just for the limited amount of times we saw him, and even with the 12 games, we really didn't see much of K-9 against Youngstown State, and we didn't Mm -hmm. see much of him against Ohio State. So we really saw 10-plus games but I don't think anyone's going to forget it. Right, right. Plus, you have to think about what it does to the program's timeline and the acceleration it does for the rebuild, too. So obviously, we've all discussed that at great lengths, but that's that's something that is just another added part to his legacy where, yeah, sure, he was only here a year, but in that one year, you could argue he accounted for several of the wins. So great points. Yeah, yeah. And and you can say, well, Sean Rushford, is the all-time leading scorer in Big Ten play, you can say that Steve Smith or Scott Skiles or Gregory Kelser or any number of players uh, had incredible four-year careers. Irvin was only there two years, but mm-hmm. you can look at you know a 10-win season before he came and then um, 50, uh, what were they, uh, 51 and 11, the two years he was there, and then right back down to well below 500. So how much impact did he have? And that's the same thing I would argue about K-9. So I guess the next question that I would ask is moving the timeline a little up from the Magic Johnson days to one of the other bigger icons uh, at Michigan State, and uh, that is Coach Nick Saban. And (laughs) you were were in the prime of your career covering uh, Coach Saban, so I've got to ask you, with a guy that's as animated and as <laughs> uh, as uh, well known for his intensity as as Coach Saban, what are some of your? I guess what is your favorite story that that always sticks with you when it comes to your days of covering Coach Saban? I did not know Nick Saban when he was fired at Ohio State by Earl Bruce. He spent one year at Navy, and then uh, George Perlis brought him in. And uh, George kept telling me, you know, this guy is just amazing what he does and how intense he is. And then I saw him and he's his size. And uh, it was hard for me to see him as being this uh, authoritarian football coach, but, but he was. And uh, I think the first three years he was on the staff, I never saw him smile. <laughs> and finally, uh, year five, his last game, as a Michigan state assistant, they play USC in the Rose bowl and Michigan state wins on a field goal at the end of the game, uh, win 20 to 17 and USC comes back down the field. looks like they're going to score the winning touchdown. They really dominated the game and Michigan state gets a fumble recovery. And at the end of the game, after all the celebration, those days you could actually get into the locker room. Uh, 
unlike now for something like that. <laughs> but I was walking by the coach's office at, at the Rose Bowl, and I saw Saban in there smoking a cigarette and staring at the stat sheet. And I stuck my head in and I said, hey, Nick, why don't you go out there and celebrate? Have a good time. He looked up and he said, did you see what they did to my defense? <laughs> that was Nick Saban. And uh, stayed in touch with him after uh, he went to the Houston Oilers and then um, came back and coached one year at Toledo and then hooked up with Bill Belichick with the Cleveland Browns. And uh, I knew that he wanted the job. He'd made that clear to me. So uh, I was kind of campaigning for Nick to get that mm -hmm. position. It didn't look like he was going to get it. Right. And um, I wrote a piece, a long piece, one of the longest pieces I ever wrote at the State Journal called The Case for Nick Saban. And it talked about him sitting in Andre Risen's grandmother's garage, drinking beer with her at two in the morning and all kinds of things that made him um, unique as a Michigan State coaching candidate. And at the end, it came down to Fran Ganter, who was uh, the heir apparent to Joe Paterno at Penn State and Saban. And the university president, Peter McPherson, really liked Fran Ganter. But he didn't know if he could get it because Ganter was going to wait around and going to succeed uh, Paterno. Well, Paterno coached another 15 years after that. So right. good thing he, uh, you know, he, he's misplaced ideas of when he would take over, but it didn't work out. And uh, he wound up hiring Saban. And <laughs> I had two stories written. Um, McPherson told me, I'll let you know at 11 o'clock. It was on a Friday night. And um, Drew Sharp of Detroit Free Press had actually flown uh, to State College. He was going to get the first interview with Fran Ganter. Turns out he wasn't the guy, kind of like Jim Harbaugh and the Minnesota Vikings. So I got the call, and he says, uh, we're going with your guy. Uh, <laughs> and so I uh, wrote the story. We had uh, a banner a hole at the top of the A1 uh, for the state journal that Saturday. And one of those two stories was going to go in a copyrighted story. I got a two-part question. The first one being uh, four years. If Nick Saban had stuck around for four more years, does Michigan State win a national championship? And then what kind of uh, similarities and correlations are you seeing from Mel Tucker that kind of remind you a little bit of Saban? Uh, Michigan State would not have won a national championship in any sort of short order with Nick Saban because it didn't have the infrastructure in place, didn't have the support in place. Nick Saban, in five years at Michigan State, never won a bowl game. Now, his fifth team did win a bowl game, but it was after he was already on a plane to LSU and Bobby Williams was coaching that team. But uh, Michigan State was still a long way away, and I can't imagine him sticking around uh, for four more years at that point. And until he went to Tuscaloosa, five years was the longest Nick Saban had been at any job. So if he hadn't left after the 99 season, he would have left after the 2000 season or the 2001 season. 
he would have been more marketable, and uh, he was not a lifer in East Lansing. So do you see any comparisons uh, when you kind of watch and cover uh, Mel Tucker, just as far as his approach to not only the football on the football field, but also with his recruiting tenacity, too, that kind of sounds a little similar to some of the stuff you said about Saban while he was here with Andre Risen? So, so many similarities. And sometimes, guys, uh, I'll leave a press conference and I'll just kind of laugh because I've heard the same phraseology uh, coming from Nick Saban, you know, 20-some years ago. And uh, he would leave a, you'd leave a press conference and you'd realize that he really hadn't said anything. Uh, He'd answered every question, but he hadn't told you anything. So uh, it became a real art to ask a question that could, could actually get Nick to answer it. But in terms of the recruiting intensity, in terms of taking the job seriously, in terms of it being all business, uh, I think that Mel Tucker uh, would do just about anything to win. I'm not talking about uh, injure people or shoot them or anything, but anything short of that. Uh, it's very, very important to him to be successful. And there have been other coaches that I don't think it was that important to. Uh, their lives had other aspects to them. And I think that in terms of uh, the way he looks at it, the way he can motivate players, the way he can get the best out of them, um, his, his approach to recruiting is completely different from what Mark D'Antonio had with that uh, compass point in East Lansing and you draw the five-hour radius. When you have more players coming in from Georgia than from Michigan, uh, that tells you all you need to know. Right. Absolutely. So I guess with that in mind, so right now I'm kind of drafting a column here and what it looks at is the last few months of Michigan state football culminating for the momentum that is, that is out there right now. So if you look at the 11 win season, more than doubling the Vegas win projection, you look at the hiring of Brandon Jordan, which is very out of the box and immediately yielded great visitors. You look at a junior day that has had more star power than any other junior day in Michigan state history. You look at three commits in a week. Michigan state is currently sitting at the fifth best class in 2023. So those bullet points all in mind and you having um, a more wide spanning sense of context here than someone like me that's caught in the moment. How would you kind of categorize the kind of momentum and trajectory that the program has right now? And maybe, I don't want to say compare, but I guess, have you seen anything like it? Or is it valid for somebody to argue that right now the program might have more buzz than maybe any other time in modern history of the program? Yeah, I would say uh, maybe more buzz than it's had. Uh, when Saban came in in 95, I thought he would do great things. Right. I did not think Mark D'Antonio would do that. And after his introductory press conference, I uh, appeared on a lot of the television hits because I'm old. And they said, well, what do you think of this guy? And, and I said, I think he's good. I think he'll do a very solid professional job. Uh, He won't embarrass himself. He won't embarrass the university. And I think Michigan State could become an eight-win program, maybe eight-and-a-half wins. Never thinking that they would go 40-5 and in a 45-game stretch, that uh, they would win 
two Big Ten championships and go to college football playoff in the span of a little more than 24 months. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see that era again. We might, but uh, I think the odds are against averaging 12 wins a year over three years. But if anybody can do that, I would say it is Mel Tucker in this environment. And I, I add those words because he is getting more support than any Michigan State coach has ever had. Certainly, you would have to go back to Duffy Doherty when he was close personal friends with the president and he could circumvent the AD if he wanted something. Right. So in this case, uh, if Mel wants something, need a new football building, uh, you want to pay your staff double what they're used to getting, you want to add 10 more analysts, whatever the case is, Michigan State, for the first time, I think since John Hanna was president, is all in. And before, I don't know if you want to say Michigan State was afraid of greatness or they were always asked, but what about, it was always a but what about. And now it's, will it help to win? Uh, my, my good friend Earl Robinson, who was a longtime radio fixture at WKAR on campus, he used to say, uh, you run with the big dogs or you stay on the porch. And uh, Michigan State, is trying to run with the big dogs. Right. No doubt. No doubt. So I guess if you kind of look at everything that is happening in college football as a whole, and you look at the arms race, you look at the facilities, you look at donors down at Auburn, just making a mess of that program. You look at Texas, you look at some of these places where there is big money present, but they have a lot of yeah. influence and uh, it's not an influence in a good way. It's a, it's a lot of people muddying the waters. Oh, yeah. How would you kind of describe, first of all, Michigan State dipping their toe into that level of financial commitment for their head coach, but maybe not having the same negative infrastructure around the program in that way? Do you think that's fair to say? You've been around the program. You know how it works. How would you kind of categorize Michigan State step up to the big leagues, but maybe keeping some more purity in the background. Well, I think Michigan State is completely rolling the dice on this. And the reason is uh, it's not Ohio State and it's not Michigan and it's not Penn State. And its revenues, uh, its athletic revenues are about 65% of those schools. So it's a completely different playing field. They have so much more to work with. They have so many more advantages. But in the current landscape, with the transfer portal, uh, with what uh, some donors can now do, uh, and the key is how do you manage those donors? And are you sure you have the right ones? Uh, If you have a Matt Ishbia and you have a Steve St. Andre and uh, they're not in it for themselves and they're going to, do what the the coach and the administration wants, then maybe it can work. But that is the only way Michigan State can level the playing field. I would still say that uh, over any 10-year period, Ohio State should have the most success in the Big Ten, uh, Michigan and Penn State after that, and then you get down to Michigan State, and then you've got Iowa and Wisconsin, and and maybe some schools that have overachieved in some ways. But uh, I think that for Michigan State, to get up to that next level, I don't want to say they're going to have to do it with smoke and mirrors, but they're going to have to be very creative 
And without uh, as good a coach as there is in the league, they wouldn't have a chance to succeed. Right, right. I think that's the key is they kind of see that too. And that's where all this buzz and marketing and all that comes from. And then if you kind of look at what Clemson did, um, at least in my lifetime, Clemson wasn't really anything special. So you kind of go ahead and you see here are donors giving yeah. facility and money to Dabo Sulini, then yeah. getting out of the way and being patient. And Clemson was born as a result of that formula. So I think I, that is a great comparison because you can go back 20 years and, and you know, who was Clemson? They had right. one national championship in 1981, which was kind of a fluke. And then they got uh, completely off the radar and uh, they were as liable to get in trouble or to disappoint. They used to have a uh, phrase that expressed the disappointment. They called it Clemsoning. And uh, for Michigan State, some people might have said, well, they're Spartaning again. But now uh, I think there's been enough success between what D'Antonio was able to accomplish and uh, what Mel Tucker seems able to do. Uh, I didn't know if I would live long enough to see a period of time where Michigan State would have 10 wins over Michigan in 15 years or have three Big Ten championships in six years and to do it with different quarterbacks. So uh, for Michigan State to do what it has done, uh, we know now how close they are to the ceiling. Uh, I think they could have played Ohio State 20 times. They would have got the same result. But basically – uh, you saw what, how good Michigan State can be, and it took them winning every close game to do that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you're not always going to win every close game, and I think fans have to be aware of that. And the first time that Michigan State has an eight-win season, not say, well, that was fun while it lasted. Uh, you know, we're right back to being Michigan State. Right. Corey, anything else? I, I guess uh, to end it with a fun question and staying in line with talking about uh, legends, uh, our Stephen Brooks, I know you guys are pretty close. <laughs> so, so what's a good Stephen Brooks story or maybe an embarrassing one? Because we know he'll be listening to this once we drop it. Well, I would encourage anyone who loves the game of baseball to call Stephen Brooks. And talk to him about baseball because it, it means so much to him. Or, you know, just just keep sending him texts and emails and he's really busy. So I might not get back to you right away, but there's nothing he likes more than to sit and talk about who should be in the baseball hall of fame or you know why baseball is so much better than football. Yeah, he loves those arguments. <laughs> For the people that are not familiar, so so Corey and Steven and I, we talk all the time and we will send um, a, like a random tweet about the University of Miami hiring someone. And Stephen will talk to us about that at length. And we talk about basketball. We talk about this and that. The second anyone sends anything baseball related, there's uh, there's radio silence from Stephen's end. <laughs> uh, I said, yeah. uh, if Stephen ever uh, goes to hell, which I don't anticipate, but <laughs> I know he's not going to burn. He's going to come back as a bat boy. <laughs> Uh, all right jack that was tons of fun we really appreciate your time we know you got tons of things going on and we really appreciate your insight your time and thanks thanks so much for coming on the show 
Stephen is on with me, as you guys know, for an hour every Wednesday. And uh, we're going to have to have you guys on as guests. Sounds good. Definitely. Come on. Maybe we can do a a remote, a two hour show from the post office. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can. uh, I can work with uh, Brittany on it and see if she can make it happen for us. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks again, Jack. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you. We'll be right back after this for another segment on MSU Recruiting. Hey guys, we're back for another segment of the Spartan Spotlight. I'm still here joined by Corey Robinson, and we're going to talk about the recruitment of Bo Edmondson here. So Corey, today, Michigan State landed Bo Edmondson. It's a great day. Anytime you can land a quarterback, especially if it's a top 500 one from the state of Texas, powerhouse out there in Austin. He went to Lake Travis High School. They've developed NFL quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield being one of the more recent ones. What are your thoughts on the commitment of Bo Edmondson? Um, I guess I start with it was a bit of a surprise, like not not that he wasn't on the radar, just the timing wise. Uh, I didn't know that he was that close to a decision, but uh, I think we both uh, got like a slight clue that something was happening, and we ran with it and was, were able to find out uh, that it ended up being him. So then we got the quotes and everything. Uh, as far as the impact, like you said, he's at Lake Travis, which is one of the top schools in Texas, uh, produces a ton of quarterbacks and uh, other professionals or future professionals and D1 players. Um, as far as his ability, uh, I think he's one of the better throwing quarterbacks Michigan State's landed in probably quite a few cycles outside of uh, Kate and Hauser, who also is in that top category. Um, and as far as where he's at on the board, I think everybody obviously knew Dante Moore was number one on the board, the Detroit Martin Luther King five-star, but uh, he was number two. So to be able to at least lock that up right now early to get a guy that was right. in that top group, I think is huge for the team. Right. I agree. So usually if you get a top 500 quarterback, everyone is – um, happy, at least in these parts up in East Lansing. And you're thinking, okay, we got a kid that played six, a ball down in Texas, a kid that has other power five offers, the kid that has great tape and everyone is jumping up and down. And I think they still should be in this case. But one of the things that are notable here is that, like you said, Dante Moore is still a big fish that's out there. So a lot of fans still have their eyes on there and, and that makes sense. But at the end of the day, you can consider this, I guess, the floor of this year's quarterback cycle. And when the floor of your cycle, who could very well end up being the only quarterback, so it's not like he's just a backup plan, but if that is where you are at in February, 12 months before regular signing day, I think you just have to be very excited about what you have there. And just diving into a little bit about what Bo Edmondson brings, Um, You can go to my Twitter and go to the media tab and kind of scroll and see this tweet where I put 22 seconds of four different Bo Edmondson throws. And I've written here that he showcases the propensity to stand in the pocket and make next level throws while under duress. He has a quick release and routinely hits um, high velocity balls into tight windows. And he hits wide receivers and strides all at the same time. And once again, this is all against Texas 6A competition. So essentially, he really does fit the definition of a gunslinger. He's a guy that stands in the pocket until the last second as a quick release and just fires the ball into tight windows. 
He's a guy that I think will have a pretty decent rise here as the senior season commences in Texas. And a lot of people that are the stargazers that don't bother to look at film and just say, oh, well, we got a three-star quarterback. Why? Why didn't we get a four-star like last cycle, Kayton Hauser? Well, Kayton Hauser in February of 2021 was a kid that was ranked outside of the top 600. I believe he was 632nd. And now he's a top 247 kid 12 months later. Right now, Bo Edmondson is ranked in the 400s. So technically, Bo Edmondson is about 200 spots, 150 spots ahead of where Kayton Hauser was at this point of Kayton Hauser's junior year. So really, if you are going to be a stargazer, you have to look at it in context. You have to look at it. How far are we from signing day? You have to look at, okay, the kid that I'm comparing him to, was he a four-star the whole time? The answer is no. So really, you might have a situation here where Jay Johnson could have a second straight quarterback, uh, back-to-back cycles, that could be a late riser who could rise in his senior year tremendously, where he got in early before a lot of other programs did, and you could be looking at another steal here. And maybe you also look at Dante Morin if you snag him, even better. But essentially, this doesn't change anything in terms of the Dante Moore recruitment. They're still going after Dante Moore. Whether that means they take two quarterbacks or whether it works itself out in a different way and Dante Moore is the only guy, or as like I said, you should already be pretty excited about the fact that Bo could be the guy. And if he's the only guy, that's also exciting too. So essentially, a lot of the fears and questions that I'm getting on the timeline, um, which are questions that, to be honest, should be asked uh, behind the VIP board and not under a tweet that Bo is tagged in. Um, a lot of those questions, I don't think really have any uh, relevance right now. And a lot of these things will get figured out as the cycle goes on. Anything else, yeah. Corey? Yeah, I'll add real quick, too, is this summer and spring, that's when recruits, quarterback recruits really have their rankings kind of go up and down. Because if Bo chooses to do the camp circuit, which I'm assuming he will, that's when the guys are made is once they go to those original Elite 11s, make it to the finals, and he's got the arm talent to absolutely climb in the rankings. So uh, you're going to probably see one of those climbs where, like you mentioned, Kate Hauser or Penn State, their 22 quarterback. Right. I mean, he went from uh, somewhere probably around Bo's range to right. I think like a top five, top 10 kid in the class at the end of it. Yeah. Because, a, based off of our talent too. So, I mean, right. it's like, like this is going to be a huge summer of where he ends up. I think right. he's going to, a high ceiling. And lucky for him, he plays at a very, very um, high visibility high school. Like I said, like Travis, it's a powerhouse. So he's positioned well for people to take notice of that. But with that said, thanks for listening to this episode of the Spartan Spotlight podcast. And we will be back soon.